Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. Today... We're taking your questions about the 2024 NBA draft. It's just a solo pod. It's me, myself, and I, Bryce Simon, went to the Chiefs game today. Bryce will be back Tuesday, something like that. Not sure when yet, but Bryce will be on the show this week for sure. We have to record a few different podcasts uh, because, as I've mentioned, I'm going on vacation next week. I'm really excited to do this. It's a really fun, interactive way to talk to you guys, answer your questions, be able to dive deep into some things that maybe I'm missing the forest for the trees on, right? That's really important to me. I want to hear from you guys. I want to be able to answer the questions that you have about my work, about the show, about the 2024 NBA draft. We're going to focus a lot on the 2024 NBA draft today. Might take a couple of general NBA things near the end, but for the most part, We're going to try and hold this to the 2024 NBA draft. If you're watching over on YouTube, I'm going to put a link to my 2024 NBA draft big board into the comments so you can take a look at that. If you have any questions on where I have players ranked, we'll be able to discuss that as well. Where I want to start is actually the guy that I have ranked at number one, Isaiah Collier. Basketball Genesis. Uh, This is not a question to start, but I think it's a reasonable statement. Uh, Basketball Genesis, Isaiah Collier is uh, not the number one overall pick. Look, I had Collier at number one last Thursday. He has not played wildly well since then. The biggest thing that I want to point out to people is we go through this process of the 2024 NBA draft. This is going to be a bigger moving target than any draft that I think a lot of, you know, the younger generation, you know, let's call it like people 35 and younger, like myself, I'm 33. I've started doing this when I was 24 or so, the 2023, 2013 NBA draft, I guess. This thing is going to slide up and down. There are going to be players moving around the board like crazy. I have Reed Shepard at six. We're going to talk about Reed Shepard here near the top of the show. I don't know if Reed Shepard's going to finish there. You could tell me Reed Shepard finishes anywhere from like number two on my board to number, you know, 45 on my board. I don't know. But from what we saw in the first month of the season where Reed Shepard was the best freshman in college basketball, I thought that he earned being ranked number six on a board like that. So it's hard to really know where these guys are going to pick, going to get picked. Isaiah Collier saying he's not the number one overall pick completely reasonable. You, you could have Isaiah Collier as low as like eight or nine right now. I would totally buy that. And I think it's completely reasonable to have that opinion. Uh, I would have Collier somewhere in the top three or four. I thought the game today was atrocious. Obviously, I don't know what happened with him at the foul line. Uh, you know, obviously there were some difficulties there in terms of him. Uh, maybe not being a hundred percent 
it's it's odd. It was a bizarre game. I don't totally know what to make of them losing to Long Beach. I don't love, as I've mentioned previously on the show, I don't love the way that he has been utilized at USC. I don't love the post-mismatch stuff. Uh, that game against Gonzaga, I thought, was a great microcosm of what he can be versus what utilizing him improperly can lead to. Uh, in that game against Gonzaga, he had 12 potential assists in the first half of that game, and they mostly came out of ball screens with him dictating action, being able to hit driving kicks, driving dump-offs, things like that. And in the second half, they went to a lot of like post-mismatchy stuff. They tried to make him more of a scorer. I've always loved Collier a lot more as a guy who can drive and kick and be able to play. Uh, out of that, be able to play out of his passing game first, get downhill, utilize the pass first, utilize the ability to finish at the rim really well. The thing that I also liked a lot about Collier early in the season was the three-point shot was falling at a real level, small sample size, obviously, but the mechanics looked better. We'll see whether or not that lasts. Collier is like a total wild card at this point. Every player in this draft, I think, save for maybe like a couple like Jacoby Walter is not really a wild card to me. There are flaws there, but Jacoby Walter will go somewhere in the top, you know, 16 or so. I feel confident of that. Uh, he's a good defender. He's a really good shooter. The passing needs to really improve with the way that he reads the floor, but he is, you know, the guy that I've likened him to is someone like Contavious Caldwell Pope. And I think that you, know, you take somebody like that in the top 16 in a draft like this for sure. So when it comes to Collier, I look at it and say, this is going to be a process. We'll see what it looks like whenever the season ends, right? This is a moving target throughout the course of the season. Every pre-draft cycle is a moving target, but this year, maybe more than any other, I would just really implore people like you see someone ranked on a board and this doesn't just go for me. I think it goes for anybody. Don't assume that they're going to end there. Like I have Ron Holland at number seven or eight right now, something like that. Uh, he's gone for like 25 plus in each of his last four games and has looked a little bit better. I would say uh, certainly better in terms of being able to get buckets, which is a critical piece of his evaluation. If you like him as more of a primary guy, if you think he's more of a secondary guy, then you might be still a little bit disappointed with some of the defensive stuff, some of the passing things. Uh, we'll see what it looks like. That's where I'm at on the entire Isaiah Collier uh, situation at this point. Also, we're talking about maybe Bronny James at the top here. I really like the way he defended uh, against Long Beach State today. That's always been, to me, the best part of Bronny's game. I, I really, really love the aggression, the athleticism that he brings to the table on that end of the court. He's going to have to. He's something like six foot two to six foot three, uh, according to all the measurements that we have taken from him previously has real length to be able to impact the game that way. Definitely a super high level athlete, just, you know, maybe not quite what his father is, but a super explosive dude up in the open court, you know, has a great frame, long arms. And again, brings that aggression. I think that his anticipation uh, and just general instincts on the defensive end is also quite good. And I really like Bronny. I'm still not sure if he's a one and done yet. I mean, he might end up being a one and done, you know, just so that he can get to, uh, you know, the NBA a little bit sooner so that he can play with LeBron. 
we'll see if that ends up being the case. Uh, offensively, it's going to be a process for sure, but I am in general a fan of what I saw from Bronny in an opening game of a college career. Okay. Let's go to some of the Twitter questions that I got first here, and then we will try to follow up with some of the YouTube questions later. Additionally, I'm going to try and try and format this. So I talk about certain teams all in the same place, kind of. Uh, there are a few questions about UConn guys. There are a few questions about Kentucky guys. So I'm going to try and group all of that together. So the first question here comes from Sean Sherbs over on Twitter. If Aaron Bradshaw looks 80% of what he did the other night against Penn, say something like 13 points, eight rebounds, a block, a three per game, and continues to show real touch, where does he rank? It's a great question. I watched that game this morning, uh, actually. And I think I was a little bit less impressed maybe with Bradshaw than what the numbers would say. Uh, in total, Bradshaw comes off the bench, goes for 17 points. Uh, looks like 11 rebounds, including five offensive rebounds. I'm kind of looking this up as I go. Three blocks, one steal. What I liked most about Bradshaw was the activity level, the length, uh, the aggressiveness that he brought to the glass. I thought that uh, playing a team with Penn that is somewhat undersized, like we can just be real about that, right? Like their average height is 270th in the country. The Spinoso, you know, center that they play with is six foot nine. And then everybody else on the court, you know, for the most part is going to be like six foot six and under. I thought he utilized his length super well. I thought he was very active and aggressive on the glass and created a ton of those extra offensive possessions for Kentucky. Obviously had, uh, I'm trying to see here what he shot from the foul line. Uh, he goes six of 10 from the field, including one of two from three, two of four from the line. Uh, got to the line, it felt like quite a bit in that game as well. Maybe even, I thought like maybe he got there more than what he did but was super active on the glass, creating those extra possessions, got a few tip-ins, hit that three. They ran two plays where out of out-of-bounds sets, it looks like he tried to, it looks like Kentucky maybe utilized him as like a last-ditch option where he got wide open from three, Spinoza sagged off of him, not sure if they wanted to believe in him as a shooter from moment one of his college career. And it was interesting to see that they ended up deciding that we're going to leave him open and Bradshaw nails the first one, misses the second one on that baseline out of bounds sets. I think the shot looks a little bit flat. I don't know that his shot prep is great getting into it yet. Uh, I might be able to pull up a couple of clips here as we go, just because I pulled a bunch of the tape. Uh, I don't know if I want to try and dive into that now. Maybe I'll do that at a later date. Uh, I'll do a bunch of breakdowns either, you know, at some point on a lot of these guys uh, on this channel. So be tuned in for that. But the shot looked a little bit flat. I don't know the shot prep was all that great. That's going to be an intriguing piece of it. I thought defensively he was over aggressive in spots. He got hit with an up and under one point uh, by Spinoso. He got driven a few times. He got scored on the block, I think two or three times against as well. 
I, I would like to see where he's going to settle in defensively before I make any significant prognostications on where his draft stock is. Uh, you know, he might end up being somebody that is a real lottery pick and is a real, uh, you know, top 10 guy. Even if you're seven foot one and you can shoot and you can block shots and do everything like that, you have a real chance to be, to go exceedingly high in the draft. I don't want to rule that out for Bradshaw at all. I think the tape that we saw against Penn, given some of their size deficiencies, I always love watching guys, you know, at the center position play against Ivy league schools because of the way that those schools put those centers into positions that maybe they haven't seen before because all of those schools for the most part play a lot of five out offense. Uh, they'll run all sort of back cuts. They'll, they're not afraid to have the center really pull away from the basket and put, you know, somebody like Aaron Bradshaw into an uncomfortable position potentially that he hasn't seen a lot of. So I love watching that tape because it's somewhat similar almost in structure to what he'll be placed into in the NBA. I actually saw a question in here in the YouTube comments about Princeton. I've loved Princeton's offense this year. And it's funny to watch Princeton's offense because they isolate more often than anybody in the country. I think that 14% of their offensive possessions right now are in isolation, but it's not a stagnant offense. What Princeton does is they get teams into all sorts of early action and early movement try and get switches, try and get mismatches that they want. And then they create these oceans of space playing five out to be able to then isolate using guys like Xavier Lee, who's a really strong creator uh, at six foot three to be able to take advantage of those mismatches, uh, drive to the paint, maybe get a separate, get some separation for a pull up. I love what uh, teams like that, like Princeton do. I think Penn did a lot of similar things with Aaron Bradshaw and in that way. It can be somewhat, uh, applicable to what you see from NBA uh, situations, given how often teams play five out in the NBA right now. So uh, I don't know that the numbers are like, you know, 13, eight with a block and a three per game. Those are going to be eye popping, but I also still don't have Khalil Ware as a first round grade. And I know that people are melting down. I watched that game uh, this weekend against Auburn and, you know, I, I did not really love what I saw from where defensively. I think a big part of it was, you know, scheme. They went into a game against Auburn with Aiden Holloway starting. You know, the first possession of the game, they go under and drop on him. The third possession of the game, you know, Gabe Cups gets drilled on a screen by Janai Broom. And where is, you know, seven feet off of Aiden Holloway? And it's just like, man what are we doing here? It's funny. So Eddie Congress says here, Aaron Bradshaw's hands impressed me the most. Shepard threw him two tough passes in transition. The one was incredibly impressive. He like caught it up here around his head and then put it into the basket, like all in one motion. I thought it was one of the most impressive catches I've seen from somebody this year. And then I also thought Bradshaw had a couple of bobbles as well. I'm even waiting to see where the hand looks. I thought in the half court in traffic, he did have a couple of bobbles. He had that one kick out from DJ Wagner near the end of the game where I thought it was a catchable ball. Wagner missed like the shooting pocket in every way, shape and form. Like it wasn't a good pass, but I felt like Wag or I felt like Bradshaw probably could have caught the ball at the end of the day. So I, I want to even see a little bit where I see his hands falling uh, to this point. So 
jury's out for me on Aaron Bradshaw, but it was really good to see him go- get going this week. It was really good to see him play really, really well. I want to see him play against some very real, uh, so, some very, very real competition levels before we dive into anything there yet. So next question here. Let's see what we've got. Let's go to the Reed Shepard portion of the show now because I know that I got a few Reed Shepard questions here. Let's just use control find. Uh, okay. First Reed Shepard question is going to come. From Parker Fleming. I know that. There we go. What would you say Reed Shepard's optimal role in the league is in relation to your ranking? So I have Reed Shepard ranked at number six right now. Again, I kind of explained at the top why I've Reed Shepard so highly ranked. I think he's been the best, most impressive, most impactful on winning freshman in college basketball. If you want to read deeper, you can read the big write-up I did on him on the big board when that got released last Monday. Uh, in terms of optimal role, I think he's the reason I like Reed Shepard is because the optimal role can be fluid based on what the team needs. I do think he can occasionally run real ball screen actions. Uh, I think that Kentucky has looked a lot better this season in general with him running the show as opposed to Wagner. Uh, I think that Rob Dillingham, you know, obviously presents a real change of pace uh, that presents problems just in terms of his speed and his ability to make decisions at a high level. Uh, I, I really, really love what I've seen from Dillingham and Shepard playing together as well. You know, Reed has played in the starting lineup with the starters. He's played a lot more minutes with Dillingham to this point. And to answer this question from Parker, what again I see as most impressive is the fact that you can play Reed off the ball. You know he's going to knock down shots at an exceedingly high level. Uh, He is over a 50% three-point shooter at this point still. Uh, He is somebody that you can trust to play on the ball and make quick decisions. The thing that's impressed me most about Reed Shepard is the decision-making, that ability to you know, see what's happening on the floor and just make rapid reads. It seems that he understands where his teammates are at an exceedingly higher level than almost anybody else I've seen in college basketball this season. Uh, he reads the court at a very, very high clip. He's processing the game at a level that I think other guys don't really see it or do it. So you can play those guys on or off ball. And I think that's what I love most about Reed Shepard is that ability to play on or off ball. And, you know, defensively, I definitely want him roaming around and being able to use his hands and use that anticipatory, you know, uh, understanding of what opposing teams are trying to do and use that hand-eye coordination to try and create havoc, right? Like there were a few really awesome plays. Like it seemed like, on a middle ball screen against Penn at one point, I think it was Rob and Aaron Bradshaw kind of went two on the ball and Spinoso, the six foot nine center for Penn just slipped the screen and got to the rim very quickly. They hit him at the rim and then Reed just rotates across as quickly as possible and just gets his hands on the ball for a quick little strip. Right. 
those action plays, those abilities to make those, you know, kind of panic scrambles and, you know, really, really impressive plays, you know, when the defense breaks down in some way, shape or form, those are so, so valuable uh, across the board to what teams need. So I really like Reed kind of playing as an off ball roamer defensively and then on the ball being able to play or on offense, being able to play both on and off the ball. Uh, the next question here is also about Reed Shepard. So let's just kind of get through all of the Reed portion of the show now. And this is a more skeptical question on Reed, which I think is completely valid as well. So this one comes from top of the key. I know you're very high on Reed Shepard. You don't have any questions or concerns about how his game would translate to the NBA. I have many of them. Reed Shepard is a six foot two dude who, frankly, I think, you know, he's a white dude who's probably going to get attacked fairly regularly in some sort of isolation situations on the ball. We saw UNC Wilmington do it a decent amount already in a game that Kentucky lost late in that game. Uh, I- I'm certainly worried about how he'll look, but I personally tend to trust in guys that can process the game at an exceedingly high level and play with immense skill. And we've seen Reed be able to play with immense skill. The names I've gotten in terms of comparables for Reed Shepard, I've gotten anywhere from like a cross of, of like a couple of people brought up Halliburton. I don't think it's that at all. A couple of people brought up Austin Reeves. Austin is way bigger. A couple of people brought up the Anthony Melton. Uh, I think that Reed is just way more skilled than what Melton was at USC. That name tends to come up because of the gaudy steal and block rates, because that was what Melton did at USC. Um, I've heard George Hill. That's probably the one that like I kind of like most, but even George Hill at IUPUI uh, was super long and like was athletic and kind of lived at the rim. I think if you look at the role more of what George Hill brought to NBA teams, that's kind of an interesting compar- comparable point. Uh, you know, Clayton Simpson brings up Jalen Suggs, Reed Shepard comp. Uh, he doesn't, Reed doesn't play with that kind of, you know, unbridled aggression and uh, intensity and everything. He plays like kind of a low key, like calm game uh, where everything is so efficient. Uh, whereas like Jalen does a lot of inefficient things still on the court, both positively and negatively a lot of the time. Uh the George Hill comp, like in terms of like what George looked like in the NBA is kind of interesting to me. Uh, I think Zach Milner maybe told me that one. Shout out to Zach. Uh, I'm trying to think of, you know, a couple of others that, you know, maybe you're interesting on the downside. Like someone brought up Jimmer Fredette to me as a name. I don't think that's like completely invalid uh, as a name to bring up. I think that, you know, Reed is a guy that has, way more processing and natural like feel for the game than what we saw from Jimmer early on in his career at BYU. But, uh, and then read on top of it, you know, much more active and aggressive defensively with his hands, block shots, like can do all of those things that Jimmer just never really did. So new basketball Genesis brings up Darren Collison. I don't mind that one either. Uh, you know, if Reed had more wiggle to his game, I would get CJ McCollum vibes. Yeah. Like, again doesn't have the wiggle though so that's what makes it a little bit difficult like i I heard you know someone who doesn't have a lot of wiggle like desmond bain right but desmond bain is built like a mac truck so it's a little bit hard to compare him from a strength perspective there isn't an ideal guy across the nba right now to compare to reed shepherd which to get to top of the keys point i have a lot of concerns about reed shepherd 
But if you look at the guys across the league right now that have really tended to exceed what their, you know, standing was pre-draft or anything like that, you know, Jalen Brunson, Tyrese Halliburton, you know, Jalen Williams, et cetera, et cetera. I think they do it with elite level processing ability, elite level skill, uh, in shooting. Those are the three things that if you can bring those things to the table, I really am going to be impressed. And, you know, Eddie Congress says read six foot two alligator arm frame. will keep him out of the lottery. I think that's really possible. Like I, I absolutely think it's totally plausible that he does not go in the lottery. Uh, I really like him as a player, but you know, I like guys that don't go in the lottery. Shout out Leonard Miller, right? I had him as a lottery grade and he went in the second round. And I still feel good about that based off of what we've seen so far from him in the G league. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla minus one recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan and you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon prime or something to be able to watch it. So When I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions, just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account, nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Next ones I want to get to are a couple of Yukon questions. Because I saw some fun ones there. So from Brian Kervik, how do you evaluate someone like Donovan Klingon? He had the right 
foot toe stress fracture in September. As far as I can see, this new toe injury post Kansas is on his left foot, dominated lesser competition, but has struggled at times in the bigger matchup so far. So Donovan Clagan's a really important player to be able to evaluate in this class. I don't think we've seen the best physically from Donovan Klingon to this point at UConn. Uh, if you know anything about Klingon's trajectory, he was a guy that was really kind of overweight uh, when he was, I think, like 16 or so and got into incredible shape in the summer before his freshman season at UConn, like best shape of his career, everything like that really a high level, like got into high level condition, really did everything he could to put himself in the best position to make an impact as a freshman. Nobody really thought of him as a potential impact freshman either. He was seen as somebody that was probably a project given, you know, the frame and everything when Connecticut decided to take him. He got gets to Connecticut last year in phenomenal shape, moving really well across the court, makes an incredible impact defensively. And we get excited about him as a lottery pick. What I've seen so far this year is that I just don't think he has the same twitch and the same conditioning yet. Like, I think he just looks a little bit heavier than the guy I saw at the final four last year when I sat courtside, right? Like, I think that he, more than anything, it'd be great if clinging can take this, you know, little run that they have without some games. You know, I think that they have a little you know, maybe week, week and a half where they might not play a ton. Uh, you know, what they play Gonzaga on the 15th. They play Seton Hall, the 20th, St. John's the 23rd. And then from the 23rd to January 2nd, they don't have a game. I would love it if Donovan Klingon like could take that time or maybe even like Connecticut, you know, pro- they probably need them against Gonzaga. Uh, you know, they probably need them against Seton Hall. Maybe you try and not play him against St. John's, get him like a two week runway to like really get his body right again and then get rolling. Right. That, that'd be fantastic. But I don't think we've seen the best of Donovan Klingon. It's like almost when I watch Connecticut games, I'm just not watching for him a lot anymore. And the crazy thing is, by the way, the defensive impact stats are still there. His defensive ability around the basket, he's just so big and so long and so smart in terms of the way that he uses his body and frame. He is so, so impactful and such a dude that can make such an incredible impact on that end of the court. But I think that he needs to be able to make an impact on the offensive end by getting into hopefully better shape, being able to run in transition. And I'm not saying this like he's not trying to be in shape. I think that, you know, again, the injuries probably just, you know, maybe got his conditioning set back a little bit. So I'd love to see him be able to run the way he ran last year in transition. Also, I've seen a lot of Connecticut fans kind of complain about, oh my God, they throw him the ball down on the block. You know, we used to be able to do that with Adama Sonogo last year. And, you know, Sonogo would just go in and, get these buckets right at the basket with his beautiful little floater, all these layups, right? It's not Donovan's game. Donovan's like a ball screen rim runner. Uh, I wouldn't expect to see him have a lot of success as like a post guy. And they've used him a lot less than they used Adama last year as a post guy. I think the coaching staff understands that. So uh, another piece of this is also Donovan last year would come in and after Adama Sanogo would 
play incredibly physically and beat the ever loving shit out of these guys that he was going against because Sonogo is one of the most physical dudes that you'd see across college basketball. So I think that plays a role as well. Klingon has to kind of wear those guys down and do that himself now, as opposed to being able to come off the bench and do it. So uh, I've certainly dropped Klingon a little bit. I still have him at like 12, 13 or so on my board. If I remember correctly, I've really liked what I've seen from Don uh, on defense though, this season uh, enough to where I think he'll be a first round pick when he decides to come out. It's just, can he showcase the offense that allows him to get the most out of what he's capable of on draft night? Uh, Brendan in the YouTube comments asked, happy to see Tristan Newton at 67. Do you think there's a path toward him ending up on a guaranteed deal? Or is the class just so weak that in the 60s as a a quality college player, he just fits? Yeah, Tristan's one of the most interesting guys that you see uh, right now because even though he's a little bit older, uh, I believe that you know, he turns 23 before he'd ever play an NBA game, maybe even before the draft. All of these, the, the people who really like Tristan across the league, across the NBA right now, tend to be more on the uh, the quant side, the uh, analytics side of the equation. And it's kind of easy to see why he draws a crazy amount of fouls, uh, rebounds the ball really well, passes the ball well. Uh, his knockdown shots at a reasonable level is finished at the basket at a pretty reasonable level, makes his free throws, uh, just kind of across the board production stuff that tends to translate to the NBA. You know, an easy prime example of this is if you look at Ken Palm right now, Tristan Newton is in the top five of the Ken Palm player of the year award standings. And it's in large part because of all of those things I just talked about from a statistical perspective. Some of the things that I've seen from him, maybe scouting that I like. I I like the ability to create his own shot out of ball screens. I like the downhill driving ability and the fearlessness that he has on, you know, being able to just get into the rim and, you know, draw that contact and get to the foul line. It doesn't always look pretty (laughs) with Tristan. Uh, From a skill perspective, uh, I don't know totally what to make of him from a scouting perspective yet. I would like to see him just like maybe more functionally create like pull up jumpers out of ball screens and be able to hit those at like a 40% clip, 38% clip as opposed to what he does now. I like that he's six foot five and can play both on and off the ball. They'll use, you know, Cam Spencer at times on the ball. Uh, you know, Stefan Castle missed a lot of minutes there uh, throughout the portion where they played some real teams outside of that uh, North Carolina game. So it's, hard to really even say what he's going to bring to the table once they start playing good teams. Uh, it seems like he's still getting back. He had seven points today against Arkansas Pine Bluff, uh, you know, against North Carolina. I think he was like largely invisible, played 11 minutes, had three points, right? So remains to be seen what he'll bring to the table once he gets really rolling, once conference season kicks into gear. But Tristan Newton's a guy that more than anything, the analytics departments across the NBA really like. And we'll see where that makes him settle in on draft night. I think there's a good shot. He ends up being draftable. It probably will be more as a two-way guy would be my guess, but it is plausible that he ends up uh, like as a real draft pick on draft night right now, based off of kind of the conversations I've had at this point. Okay. Let's move out of the Connecticut portion of the show 
and get into the Nikola Topic portion of the show. So this one from Brian Taylor. I'm going to answer the first one of this. Uh, Nikola Topic, what were your thoughts on him before the season? Yeah, so really interesting. I hadn't seen a crazy amount of him up until about maybe two weeks before they played. I watched the, what was it, the U19 that he played this summer. I'm kind of doing this off memory. And then I also watched the USC foreign trip that they took over into Europe where they played mega and in the game against USC, I loved what I saw from Topich as a passer playmaker, uh, incredible feel guy that can really uh, just make plays across the court. He's very clearly as a 18 year old and one of the youngest players in this draft class, making those second and third level reads out of ball screens that you hope to see from guys that are like 21, 22, and he's already making them at 18 years old. So that was the first thing that immediately popped to me. I wanted to know more about where the shooting would settle in. I think that remains the biggest question. Uh, he didn't shoot super well at the U19. And then this season uh, in the Adriatic League, it's been very uh, roller coastery. Some games he can't miss, some games he can't make one, right? So that's the big swing skill for me right now on Nikola Topic. I have Topic at number two on my board, as you guys can see, if you've taken a look at it. Everything I've seen from him in terms of the feel for the game and the comfort and poise in ball screen scenarios, it just dictates that kind of ranking, in my opinion. The production in the Adriatic League has just been uh, so superb that you can't ignore it. I do want to see where the shooting is going to settle in. He's always been a high 80s to mid 80s free throw shooter, which does give you real confidence that he's going to be a very high level shooter down the road. I would like to see it just a little bit more throughout the course of this season at, uh, you know, in the Adriatic league before really feeling comfortable and confident on where he's going to settle in as a shooter overall. Uh, a couple more topic questions that I think I saw in the comments here. Let's see. Where, man, were these later than what I thought? Yeah, so Roach Red asked, how good would Nikola Topic be on the Spurs? He's a shameless Spurs fan that loves his game. Yeah, great question. I love his ball screen ability. And I think that what they're really missing more than anything right now is somebody that can consistently make great decisions out of ball screens. I think that and may and be like consistently threatening out of ball screens, Trey Jones. I like Trey Jones a lot. I think I've been like a very staunch supporter publicly of Trey Jones this year. Trey Jones is a guy that I think makes great decisions in transition and makes quick decisions out of ball screens that end up, creating advantageous situations for his teams. But I don't think of him as a guy that's like drawing three defenders and then making like second and third level reads and being able to create easy shots for his teammates across the map and across the board. Uh, it's just that he's a good decision maker in general and poised and comfortable, doesn't turn the ball over. I like that. What Topic can do is 
I think if you put him on the Spurs, he'd be able to come in and really force a lot of defensive attention to him. Now, what I will say is that it's a thing I've been preaching throughout the course of this season in the NBA. If you look at the track record of young, like one and done or one and done aged point guards uh, or, you know, point guard sized players, let's call it and remove Luka Doncic from this conversation because Luka uh, is six foot eight and, you know, is so physically imposing that I don't think you can really throw him into this same conversation as, you know, real point guards. They come into the game as one and done players. There's really only been one, like one and done point guard in the last decade to come in and be immediately impactful and be even like remotely a positive player. And it's Trey Young. It is so fucking hard for point guards to come in and be impact guys. It's why I preach patience with guys like Scoot Henderson right now. It's why I preached patience with guys like De'Aaron Fox and Darius Garland back in the day. It's why I preached patience with Jalen Suggs throughout the course of these past two seasons. It's why, like, even though I don't love watching Jalen Green's game a lot of the time, uh, I still preach patience with him. It takes time for these guys. It took time for even somebody like Devin Booker. Devin Booker was like a good player when he was younger, but he wasn't anything resembling the top eight or nine guy that he is in the league now. It takes so much time for young guards to develop. So just don't expect if Nikola Topic goes to the Spurs, goes anywhere next year, don't expect him to be like some savior and some impact player. It's fucking hard for guards. I would love to see the Spurs go out and get like a real veteran guard to be able to play with Wembenyama. Like, I think that'd be awesome and have 48 minutes of good point guard play out on the court. Uh, that'd be a really, really big jump for them. In my opinion, uh, Daniel says Topic number one, until somebody else plays good ball. If you have Nikola Topic at number one, I don't blame you. Honestly, I might be there right now, given some of the call your turnover concerns and uh, the way that you know he played today and going back through the last few weeks. I agree. Uh, Topic is quite interesting. I love the offense. I just don't know what the ideal role is. Is he a primary shot creator, initiator, or a high-level connecting piece next to another creator? That's from Mr. Ray. I think he is probably more of a point, like a guy that you give the ball to and allow him to... Uh, make reads out of ball screens particularly i would really like somebody next to him that can be a high level isolation scorer somebody that can create his own shot at the end of shot clocks so that topic isn't going to be responsible for all of that especially from day one the ceiling could exist for that he's been incredibly productive at such a young age that i don't know that i want to put a ceiling on topic at this point it seems somewhat silly to do that but I think that what we've seen from him at this point says that he should be playing point guard. He should be playing in a lot of ball screens, making plays, being able to hit high level passing reads. Uh, I think that's definitely the role, at least for Nikola Topic. Um, yeah. Mr. Ray also says love Trey Jones coming out of 2020 class. Excellent pick. Excellent pickup for the Spurs. Totally agree. I had Trey Jones at like 20 or so. So I really, really like, uh, what I've seen from Trey Jones as well throughout the course of his career. Okay. Next question here, trying, like I said, to go in some sort of 
order. Maybe we can get into the Ryan Dunn portion of the show now. So from Kingston over on Twitter, does Ryan Dunn have enough offensive upside to become an all-star? I'm talking about him more as like a Herb Jonesy kind of guy now. Uh, until we see Ryan Dunn make shots in a consistent way, I think it would be very difficult to project that for him. But I will say one thing in general that I'm just trying to do more of is not speaking in definites about uh, ceilings and floors and things like that. I, I don't really love talking in definites in general, but you know, you see guys like Tyrese Halliburton, Jalen Brunson, Desmond Bain, you know, three guys that I loved. I had a first round on Jalen Brunson. I had, I think Tyrese at six or seven in that class where he went 12 and I had Desmond Bain in the top 20 when he goes 30. Like I loved him compared to where the NBA did. And I still, for all of those guys would not have had anything resembling this as a ceiling level outcome for them. So I'm trying a little bit less to talk about ceiling level outcomes uh, in saying like what somebody's upside can be. I think to reach all-star upside, Ryan Dunn would need to prove that he can shoot. And based off of what we've seen so far, I don't know that there is a reason for real positivity there right now. Uh, he did hit seven. He has hit 71% of his free throws so far. So I think there is a chance that he can get to a manageable level as a shooter where he can knock down catch and shoot shots. But I also think that like all-star upside, we just need to see so much more, uh, so, so much more uh, out of him as a shooter to where I think it's a little bit difficult to project that at this point. Now from Alex 22, what type of team do you think is the best fit for Ryan Dunn and why is it the Pistons? But seriously, what type of team would be best for him? to be playable offensively. And then Alex brings up Indiana. Indiana was going to be my answer. If the Pistons draft him like in Troy Weaver is still there. Fire Troy Weaver immediately. Jesus Christ. Uh, Indiana is a really good fit. I think because they need somebody who can be like a real defensive stopper. They do like to have five shooters out on the court. They would really have to believe in my opinion in Ryan Dunn's upside as a catch and shoot guy who can at least like comfortably space from the corners. I would kind of venture right now that that's why they don't have Jarris Walker up. Well, it's funny. Like I see all of the reporting, uh, you know, about Tyrese Halliburton, you know, is trying to convince guys to come to Indiana and Indiana is going to be active in the trade market for, you know, two way forwards. And people are just like, well, they just drafted one. Well, yeah, they just drafted one. That's absolutely true. But you know what? Like Jarris needs to prove that he can consistently knock down shots. Now he's made 40% of his six, three point attempts in the G league this year. And in college last year, you know, he made 35% from three, but if you watch the shot, once teams start to close out on him hard, or just don't feel a need to close out on him, it kind of gums up the rest of their offense. So I would imagine that's why they have Jarris Walker kind of down in the G league right now. They're just giving him reps, getting him comfortable uh, to be able to iron out that shot in a low leverage situation so that when he does come up, hopefully in February, March, something like that, that 
he can be an impact guy from the jump and be comfortable as a shooter, have that confidence level that the ball is going to go in once he does that. Uh, Ryan Dunn for Indiana makes a lot of sense, though. They could use long athletic players next to Tyrese Halliburton. That, that's you know probably my ideal fit. I'm trying to think if there's anybody else that like really stands out in terms of truly needing you know high level defensive wings. I think San Antonio could use one cuz Devin Vassell as much as we loved Vassell defensively at Florida State, I don't think he's been anywhere near that level in San Antonio so far defensively. Kelton Johnson, we loved his activity level defensively in high school. It was a little bit worse at Kentucky. I don't think he's been a very impactful defensive player for San Antonio so far. Uh, you know, Charlotte, I think could certainly use another one of these guys next to LaMelo Ball and Brandon Miller. Uh, if you believe in those guys as your core, and I think Charlotte should moving forward. Yeah, th- those teams, I think, probably are the ones that stand out to me off the top of my head. And then Miami is another one. Uh, you know, they do have their 2024 pick this year. So Miami, I think, could make a whole lot of sense for somebody. Uh, like Ryan Dunn that could use some shooting improvement at the end of the day. Okay. Next up, let's just kind of go free for all now. Okay. This is a good question from Alexander McDonald. At the top of the lottery, if the Raptors end up with like the eighth odds, should they hope to jump up into the top four and keep the pick rolling over the debt to next year or hope it conveys this year and get it over with? I am always a big believer in getting these things over with unless you are uh, you know, a team that could use something specific. Like Dallas last year, I think it made a lot of sense for them to like, tank that last game of the season and get the 10th overall pick. But we're still so early in the process this year that that's not really an option. Um, If I was the Raptors in a vacuum, or if I'm Utah, Utah is also in this position. They owe a pick to Oklahoma city right now. I would love for that pick to transfer this year. And it's because I don't think that basically any position in the top 10 as of right now, in terms of commensurate value, is going to be all that similar to a normal selection at that level. Now, it's not to say that somebody like Utah or Toronto couldn't, you know, pick somebody and then become a star, right? It's totally plausible. They both of those teams have done a really great job evaluating players and finding diamonds in the rough. In general, though, you're trying to talk in terms of like marginal efficiencies, inefficiencies. And this draft marginally is going to be a little bit more difficult to evaluate and a little bit more difficult to find those diamonds in the rough, in my opinion, that are worth the eighth, fourth, 10th overall pick, something like that, than what it might be next year. So in my opinion, you want all of those picks in a vacuum to transfer this year if you can get them to. Toronto is in a very different position than anybody because they have Scotty Barnes who is you know ready to contend on some level at least in my opinion just for the playoffs even let's say he looks like a real centerpiece but both Pascal Siakam and OG Ananobi are free agents at the end of the year 
Gary Trent Jr. is a free agent at the end of the year. And it's very clear that they're still trying to figure out what their core is around Scotty Barnes long term. If they weren't, if they didn't have questions about guys like Siakam, for instance, particularly, you just signed Siakam to an extension, right? Otherwise, the only other possible outcome here is that maybe Siakam didn't want to sign an extension, but he's been pretty clear that like he'd be open to those talks. Or you're in OG Ananobi's position where Ananobi wants to take a bet on himself this year and not lock in at like 30 million per year, which is the number he could extend for right now. Personally, I think that's pretty close for Ananobi. I think there's a good shot he makes like 35 per year. But given Ananobi's injury history, I wouldn't mind him locking in that money now, maybe if Toronto was willing to do an extension, but maybe that's just me being risk averse as a human being uh, in this circumstance. And OG should do whatever he wants to do. Ananobi is the piece that I think makes the most sense for them to retain long-term more than Siakam. I don't think that in Toronto's case, particularly they can worry about lottery odds and like future pick obligations as much as other teams. Now, if I was Toronto and I could find a way to like middle this a little bit where I keep Siakam and Ananobi up until literally like deadline day, which makes me more competitive theoretically, which hopefully will then allow the pick to transfer. And then I move, you know, one of those guys, both of those guys, along with Trent, whatever they decide to want to do. I think that's probably the solution that makes the most sense for them. Uh, you know, people in the YouTube comments are bringing up like the Pistons could throw a near max offer at OG. 100% would do that if I was them. The Pacers could throw a max offer at OG. 100% would do that if I was them. If I was the Pacers, I would be trying to go all in to get like Ananobi basically right now. Uh, I think that he really is a genuine difference maker for them. So I don't think, I think Toronto needs to kind of middle it, I guess is where I'm at. They need to probably keep their guys up until the deadline and then make a call uh, as they evaluate this roster moving forward. But I don't think that that call can be contingent upon them, upon their lottery odds for this year. Uh, in Toronto's case, I would love to have the pick convey this year, but their long-term roster building concerns and decisions outweigh whether or not they keep or retain a pick this year. Like they have real core decisions to make here with Siakam and Inanobi and everything. And I don't think that you can let that situation with the draft pick get in the way of making those decisions at the deadline as much as you can, at least there are ways to work it to where it, you can make it fly one way or another. Okay. Next up. Let's see here. Uh, which this is a fun one. Let's go with this. And I like the Twitter name. It's pro llama cuddler, uh, which top 15, prospect in your eyes has fallen down the board more than any other. I don't know that Tyrese Proctor has fallen more down the board for me than anybody else, 
But I would say that Proctor is the guy that I've probably been most disappointed in maybe uh, this year. Every time I watch him, it just feels, I I love the feel. I love the ability to make plays uh, out of ball screens. I love his unselfishness. It just feels like the scoring piece of it is not there yet. I love his defensive ability, but like for him to be a real difference maker and not just like, Australian Killian Hayes, which is kind of, I think, a thing I mentioned on a previous podcast. Uh, I think that he needs to really be able to shoot it. He's not a crazy athlete. Uh, He doesn't have like a crazy amount of shake in terms of his overall game. I think it's probably, I think that's probably the answer. Justin Edwards as well is another obvious answer. Uh, Edwards this year has just not been nearly as good as what I thought he would be. I I thought he had a little bit more uh, ability as a straight line driver. I thought he had a little bit more comfort just putting the ball on the ground. And I thought he's a little bit further ahead of where he is as a shooter. Now, maybe it's just early in his season and he'll come on strong late in the season. That would be great to see. But he's been one that has also disappointed me uh, quite a bit throughout the course of this process. Uh, okay. Let's go and see if we've got a few more here. This is a fun one actually from someone with Tyrese Proctor in their Twitter handle from Donovan access Tyrese Proctor fame. Over the past few drafts, there have been at least one to two upperclassmen to make an instant impact and outplay their draft position. Jaime Hawkes, Andrew Nemhard, Desmond Bain, etc. In terms of NBA translation, what do you look for when analyzing upperclassmen and who can be one of those guys in 2024? I look for guys that have super high feel for the game. All three of those guys, Jaime Hawkes, Andrew Nemhard, Desmond Bain. All three of those guys, I think, really fit that billing. Uh, I look for guys that have some degree of skill level. I really like shooters particularly. Uh, Desmond Bain certainly fit that bill. That's why I had a very high grade on him. Uh, Jaime Jaquez, I always thought was a better shooter than what the numbers said because he took a crazy amount of contested shots throughout the course of his career at UCLA. I always thought he was able to shoot. Uh, And then... I like guys that can defend another player like this that stands out is Herb Jones, right? Uh, Herb Jones has been very impactful throughout his early portion of his career. Tamani Kamara is a great example of this has come in and made an impact for the Portland trailblazers on that end, taking Matisse Thibel's spot. So defensively, I think is another place where you can make an immediate impact. So upperclassmen like that this season that stand out. I would say up until the last couple of days, I did like Kobe Johnson. I just don't know if Kobe Johnson has quite enough game yet, but Kobe's a great defender, can step in, I think, early on and play a role on that end. Uh, I think Tyler Kolek could come in and play a backup point guard role for somebody, like pretty close to day one, as long as the shooting continues to translate. Uh, Kolek is so smart, just knows how to operate in ball screens, knows how to get guys involved. Kevin McCuller is an unbelievable defensive player. Uh, if you told me he was, you know, playing the Tumani Kamara role uh, for somebody next year, that wouldn't blow my mind at all. 
trying to think if there are any other like real upperclassmen that stand out. Dalton Connect is a shooter, but I don't. I think that defensively, it's going to be hard for teams to kind of put him on the floor. We're kind of seeing that a little bit with Julian Strother. I think uh, Strother has been able to play a little bit for the Nuggets, just in terms of uh, the Nuggets getting hurt here and there, right? Like I feel like he plays every game, but you know, some games it's four minutes, some games it's twenty-two minutes, right? Uh, I, I would imagine that like continuing to get Strother to a point defensively where he's really able to help plays a role there. Uh, Seasons and Sloan brings up Terrence Shannon. That's an interesting name for sure. Uh, Shannon is a guy that when he was younger was actually a really high impact defensive player. I thought since he's gone to Illinois and, you know, taken on more offensive load, I think that he's had to kind of scale back a little bit on that, but you know, if he can shoot it, he has a shot. I think at least I have a first round grade on Shannon right now. But this year, it's a little bit harder right now for me to pinpoint those guys as what it has been previously. Uh, some some of the upperclassmen, honestly, I think Zach Eady could come in and be like a backup center, you know, pretty early. Uh, Eady is just like is kind of an ass kicker at the end of the day. He might only be a guy that plays 10 to 15 minutes a game for an NBA team, but he's so physical. I don't think there's a better screener in all of college basketball than Zach Eady. You, I'm going to do a video at some point on just like the fucking wipeout screens that Zach Eady sets for Purdue's guards. It's absolutely unbelievable. He is phenomenal as a screener. I think that will really endear him to NBA teams. I think that, you know, him being able to come in and just be seven foot four and be able to protect the rim and everything like that, that wouldn't blow my mind at all, but I'm still trying to decide on some of these other guys and like pinpoint who some of the early impact guys can be Uh, stay tuned. Maybe is a good answer for that. Uh, Let's see here. What else? What other questions do we got? We've got, Maybe we'll zoom through a few here over on Twitter, and then we'll zoom through some of the questions over on YouTube as well. Uh, William Hogan, what are scouts saying about Garway DeWall? His physical traits are there, but it looks like he needs work on his shooting, ball handling, et cetera. Dead on, William. You could be a scout. Uh, Look. Garway was always like a bit of a project offensively. I ranked him very highly in the preseason because I really hoped that the uh, offense maybe had taken a leap this summer a little bit. He's an elite level defender at the point of attack. He is phenomenal on that end of the court. I, you know, think that he's, he looks like more of a multi-year guy to me right now, just in terms of where the offense is at this point. Uh, From Clayton Simpson. What do you think of Robbie Avila? For people who don't know Robbie Avila, and for people who don't know Garway Dewall, before we get moving back there, I'm trying to do better at explaining who Garway, who pe- these prospects are to people who just, you know, don't always tune into the show and don't know these prospects. Garway Dewall is like a six foot five, six foot six guard prospect of Providence who is uh, one of the better defenders I've seen come through a high school class in a while at the point of attack, six foot 10 wingspan, eight foot eight standing reach, something like that. Phenomenal on that end. Just still trying to figure things out on the offensive end. Robbie Avila is a six foot 10. 
I don't know. I think he's listed at 240 pounds. I think there's no way he's 240 pounds. Like you could tell me he's 280, 275, and I would believe that a little bit more. Uh, Robbie Avila is like kind of the Missouri Valley Nikola Jokic right now, averaging something like 16 points, six rebounds, and four assists per game. He will like grab and go on the break and run all sorts of crazy stuff that way. They throw him the ball at the top of the key and he'll hit cutters. He runs dribble handoffs at a super high level. Uh, there's a play against Bradley where I think he like literally got a defensive rebound, dribbled the ball all the way down the court into like a post up and scored uh, at the rim. Super fun prospect. And frankly, like I have had a few NBA people reach out about him to me. He, it is not a not an impossible thing for him to eventually play in the NBA. He is not a 2024 guy. Uh, the things that like stand out, frankly, about Robbie Avila that they say is needs to get in better shape. Like just prove to us that you can get into better shape and we'll see where it goes from there. Defensively, he would just have no chance uh, in the NBA right now, in my opinion. So Robbie Avila is a fun name to bring up though. Uh I am not him. Should the Thunder target OG Ananobi? Yes, that is a fun name for them to target, I think. Uh, fits. You'd almost need to do it like for Lou Dort, I think, just to maintain your salary flexibility long term. And like they can throw as many picks at Toronto as Toronto wants to be thrown. But I like that fit next to Shea Gilgis Alexander and Jalen Williams and Chet Holmgren. It would make their defense truly elite between Shea, Jalen and Chet. And then you throw OG in as like a truly elite guy on that end. The bigger thing though, is he would transform their offense from a spacing perspective. I think I talked about it on a show earlier this week, but like they need to consider, I think moving Josh Giddy to the bench and trying something else, trying, uh, Kenrich Williams, maybe, maybe Isaiah Joe, whatever you want to do, but they need like another shooter in there. And if you get a shooter who can really defend at that level, that's a totally different conversation at that point. Uh, from Lawrence Field, should the Thunder consolidate their picks 13, 15, 44 currently? So for people who don't know, the Thunder have the Los Angeles Clippers pick this year. They have the Houston Rockets pick this year. Um, and they could have Utah's pick as well, if I remember correctly. Utah's currently six. That pick would have to come out of the top ten. Look, if the Thunder could consolidate that pick, yes, do that. That'd be great. But in a draft class where everybody knows the top of that class is not great, it's going to be a little bit harder. I would try to consolidate those picks, not necessarily into one pick. I would consolidate it into a player uh, more so than that. Uh, if there is a team looking to rebuild potentially, uh, I would try and consolidate those picks into a player as opposed to that. The Thunder obviously have a ongoing like roster situation where they just don't have enough slots for all of the guys that they're going to be able to draft in the next six years. It's already come to a head this year. So yes, I think they should consolidate those picks. I think they're going to have to do some roster consolidation long-term. Uh, we'll see where that gets to. Uh, Alex, you thoughts on Jaron Stevenson. Uh, I like the potential for Jaron Stevenson. I don't think he's a one and done. I've seen some people list him on draft boards. Uh, when you watched Noah Clowney last year, early, 
even against good teams, you felt like, okay, this is definitely a dude I have to track and definitely somebody who has a shot to be a one and done. I was a little bit more skeptical on Clowney in terms of where I had him graded both in the class at the end of the cycle and throughout the year. Uh, I thought that he was a little bit stiff. His high hips, uh, I think, lead to him not being quite as impactful as a perimeter defender as maybe some would think given his overall athleticism level. But what I do really like about um, Noah Clowney is like you talk to anybody about him at Alabama and they're like, he is wildly professional. He is like an absolute basketball junkie. Like he is watching tape constantly. He's trying to do this, trying to do that. I don't have like a great feel on that stuff for Jaron Stevenson yet, but with Jaron, the length is there. The potential as a shooter is there has some real athleticism. I think he would probably do well to spend two years at Alabama as opposed to one. Um, there is one more question I want to get to on Twitter before we leave. And we've talked a lot about the Ivy league on this show, actually. And we haven't even talked yet about the guy that I think is the best prospect in the Ivy league. And that's Malik Mack. Uh, any chance Malik Mack gets drafted or even has a shot at the NBA, Malik Mack is a six foot one, six foot two guard at Harvard right now. Uh, has been fantastic to start the season. Absolutely fantastic. I love what I've seen from him. He's a lefty. He can knock down shots from the perimeter. He's very creative. I have absolutely had scouts reach out to me about Malik Mack, wondering if he can be a legit like potential one and done. I just pulled up the numbers. He's averaging 20 points, four rebounds, 4.4 assists versus only 2.2 turnovers this season, shooting 47% from behind the three-point line on over five attempts per game. I loved the way that he took advantage of Indiana in ball screens. Again, like seriously, Indiana, fix your ball screen defense. It is a train wreck. Uh, I thought he was somewhat impressive against Boston College. I am trying to remember any specifics about that. I don't off the top of my head, but those were the two games that I watched specifically with Malik Mack. And then I watched probably the last like 15 minutes of the UMass game where he just like took over late and was phenomenal. Uh, Malik Mack is like a very real potential one and done prospect. Uh, I want to watch more of him before ranking him on the board, but I will probably rank him on my next big board. Uh, Malik Mack at Harvard has been fantastic. Again, I tend to be lower on small guards. Uh, 6'1", 6'2", is tough. I think Mack is going to, you know, have all of the choices at his disposal, be it, you know, he could decide to stay at Harvard, certainly. You know, if you're somebody who is a, I think he was like a top 150 recruit in the country, something like that. He wasn't a nobody coming into school you have more choices than going to Harvard. Like you can choose to go anywhere else. If you decide to go to Harvard, it says to me that you care about your academics on some level. So he could totally decide to stay at Harvard. He could look to transfer to another crazy high-end academic school. All of them will call and try and make that happen. I'm sure he could try and declare for the draft and transfer. He could just declare for the draft and go for it. He is definitely a real dude though, that, people need to be aware of and watch at Harvard. Malik Mack is a real player this year. 
a very, very, very real player. Uh, let's see here. Let's get back to the one camera now and answer a few more. Have you waxed poetic on the ascendance of Otigo away from last year to this? So I'm on your board. I haven't. I really like what I've seen from Otigo away. He needs to prove that he can shoot. He's a six foot five, you know, wing from Oklahoma. Who's a physical, powerful build, really a freight train out in transition freight train going to the rim. Uh, really, really impressive dude uh, physically who can defend at a high level and has been very, very, very uh, impressive at Oklahoma this year. Uh, just pulling up the numbers while we're talking. 15 points, four rebounds, one assist, shooting 69% from the field, 82% from three. Uh, the That 82% from three number is on, I think, 10 attempts or something like that, maybe 11 attempts, yeah. So not super comfortable with the shot. I think he needs to get more comfortable with the shot before we start taking him seriously as a 2024, but a guy that is like a real prospect. I think Javian McCollum as well has been impressive uh, at point for Oklahoma. I always quite liked him at Siena. I don't know about him as an NBA player necessarily because of the size. That's going to be a real factor for him. I would venture he's something like six foot one, 165 pounds, but high level pull up shooter plays at a great pace, plays with great tempo, real dude to watch. And then Miles Uzon has really come on of late as well. Uh, The last couple of games, I think, have been really impressive. I really liked what I saw from him against Providence. I think he had 17 and 12 in that game. So, yeah, I I really, really like uh, Oklahoma this year. They've been one of my favorite teams to watch in college basketball. Uh, From Devin Olson, how confident are you in a Daymara translating as an offensive hub a la Jokic, Shangun, and Sabonis? That mean not that confident uh, has a chance to like can really pass at a high level. I don't think he plays with as much physicality as those three guys is the real issue. Like we can talk about the passing and the skill level and like the fact that he can hit hook shots. But the thing that Jokic, Shangun and Sabonis have in common is they are all fucking ass kickers. Like they will put their shoulder into you, put their hip into you and move you backward. Like they are moving dudes around the basket. You know, Sabonis at Gonzaga, you go back and you watch him. He was mauling dudes around the rim. He was a beast. We have seen nothing of that from a day Mara so far. That's why I slid Mara way, way down on my board. Uh, The skill level is real. The passing ability, the playmaking ability, all of that stuff. I, I really, really like the skill level at the very least, but. You know, I think it's going to take a, it's going to take some time. It's going to take some real like weight room. It's going to take a lot of effort. Uh, from Stefan W, did you cover Andre Sto- Andre Stoyakovich from Carson Humphreys? Is Andre a legit NBA prospect? Uh, yes, Andre Stoyakovich is a real NBA prospect. I definitely think that. Uh, I do not think he is a 2024 personally. Uh, If you look at the games against Arkansas, Michigan, and Northern Iowa after he had that awesome hot start to the year against Sacramento State, Santa Clara, and Eastern Washington, uh, he he just was not ready yet. Like It seemed very clear that he just was not ready. He put up a goose egg against Michigan, uh, shooting 31% from the field, 16% from three in those three games. Uh, Those are the three games that I think people will pay attention to in addition to the Santa Clara game where he looked really, really good. Uh, 
I think he's a multi-year guy just physically at the end of the day. It's going to take a minute. Uh, 24 seconds, Terrence Shannon. I have him at like 25 right now, something like that. Um, let's see. Let's, there was one other, I don't know. Are there any other questions here on uh, from Brian Herrera? Can Jalen Tyson improve his draft position? Yeah, I've loved what I've seen from Tyson this year. I think that you know, at least in the public sphere, I think I might have Jalen higher than anybody right now at like 39. Every time I've watched him, he's looked super confident and poised. Uh, the game against Butler this weekend, you know, dished out a bunch of assists as well, which is something that uh, we hadn't seen from him against like a super high level of competition yet necessarily. I loved his game against Santa Clara as well, where he had 21 and 11. Uh, that's a game where they have some real dudes like Adama Ball. Uh, that was a really, really impressive, impressive uh, piece of tape, I thought, for Tyson. A guy that is like a potential first round pick, I think. Uh, whether or not he ends up being that or more of a two-way guy, we'll see. It'll depend on the rest of the year. But uh, Tyson has put himself on the map in a big way. Uh, Hanson Yang is a kid that is a like 6'9-ish, let's call him, center over in China right now, uh, playing for Qingdao. Uh, in the CBA. What I've seen from Yang, I think he's a bit more of a multi-year guy, uh, personally, uh, a guy that probably wouldn't be a 2024 if all things are equal, but I'm wildly impressed with the passing ability. The problem for him is I don't think he's a great shooter right now. And I has great touch around the basket though. It's, it's almost like the, like CBA's version of Oso Iguodaro almost where the passing ability is super high level and it's real and he has touch around the basket, but then you watch him like shoot free throws and you watch him, you know, try and shoot threes occasionally. And it's just like, he can't really do it. So given that, like, I don't really buy him defensively a ton right now, I think probably a multi-year guy, but a player that's like a very like legitimate prospect, I think. Uh, somebody that in the future could very well be an NBA player. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, like Hanson Yang is one of the best passers uh, in this draft class for sure. And he's like a six foot nine, you know, whatever he is center. I don't know how tall he is off the top of my head. Uh, let's see. Any other ones up here? Oh, uh, Fergie's asked about AJ Mitchell. Uh, out of UC Santa Barbara. Yeah, I really, really like AJ Mitchell. Uh, he has been terrific this season for UCSB. And he's a guy that I've always loved. I wrote about AJ last year going into the NCAA tournament as somebody that was one of my favorite mid-major players, averaging 21 points, 4.7 assists, 4. Point, or 4.7 rebounds, 4.2 assists, shooting 56% from the field, 46% from three, 90% from the line. Uh, Mitchell is like a six foot four, six foot five point guard scoring guard out at UCSB. Uh, the game of his that I watched recently was the New Mexico game, you know, where he struggled in terms of efficiency. He goes four of 17, uh, from the field in that game. They really hugged down on all of his drives in a way that, you know, NBA teams just frankly can't, if you put somebody like him around shooting, but because they were hugging down on drives, he found a way to get to the line 14 times. He still dropped 22 points, had five assists in that game, he had three turnovers. But I think that two of the turnovers were like 
kind of bobbled passes maybe by his bigs that they might have hit him for. So yeah, I have Mitchell, you know, right around like end of the first, early second right now. Uh could be an end of the first round pick. The guy he gets compared to most is like knockoff kind of Jalen Brunson. I think Brunson was always a higher level field player and also has always had a little bit more craft in terms of footwork, being able to separate than AJ, but AJ is crafty. He has incredible last step acceleration. Uh, really, really, really impressive player. Uh, AJ Mitchell. I am a big fan. Uh, let's see. There was one, there was another question up here. Michael Clampett asked, is this season a bust for the ignite program? Look up until they gave up 150 again over the weekend. They'd at least won two in a row against Stockton. I, I, I've written my piece about the Ignite. Like I wrote about them in the uh, big board story that I wrote. Uh, coming into last week before that second win against Stockton, uh, they were losing by an average of 19.3 points per game. The next closest team was losing by 14.4. The third worst team in the G league was losing by minus 8.4 points per game. They were essentially twice as bad as the third worst team in the G league. Bad sign. Uh, I don't love the way that they operate. I don't love the guard play down there. Uh, you know, I think John Jenkins tries his best and, and like, I don't want to loop John Jenkins into that. I think John Jenkins, his knockdown shots and space the floor, but every time I watch them, like it's, it's just disappointing. Like, I don't think there's any defensive cohesion. I don't think there is uh, a whole lot there. Uh, I have to evaluate them. You know, they've looked better since modest has been back. That's been nice. He gives them another shooter and like smart off ball cutter that is willing to do other things. But yeah, uh, it's always it's always disappointing to me to watch them. Uh, <laughs> there was one question that I wanted to get to. Where do you have Carlton at? I'm assuming that's Carlton Bub Carrington, who is a six foot five point guard out of Pittsburgh. Freshman was ranked near the bottom, kind of of like the top 100 recruiting rankings last season. Uh, I have Bub like near the end of the first round right now. The the thing about Carrington is that he showcases real comfort in ball screens. And clearly he's reading the second level of the defense, the third level of the defense, making passing reads off of that. What I worry about is a, can he get consistent penetration into the paint? Uh, he has taken, I think, like one shot at the rim per game in half court settings so far this season for Pitt. It's been very difficult for him to find his way all the way all the way to the rim as a scorer. Uh, number two, very right hand dominant. It's honestly like kind of like watching. I, I don't want to throw out Tyrese Halliburton because people are going to get like the wrong idea. Stylistically, when you watch Tyrese Halliburton at Iowa State, it was all right hand. And it was all jump passes, right? Stylistically, not in terms of player. Carrington is not that level shooter. He does not have that level of feel. It, it, totally different guy, like not that level. But stylistically, in terms of the right hand dominance, even the passes, like he gets everything back to the right hand before throwing kickouts. It's somewhat similar to Halliburton, in my opinion, uh, stylistically, but it's not as good. Like the, what transfer what transformed Halliburton's game 
was becoming an elite level pull-up shooter, right? Uh, I don't, I, I know that Carrington's hitting shots, you know, 34.8% from three right now, 43% from the field. But if you look at his games against the five high majors that they've played, so they've played Florida, Oregon State, Missouri, Clemson, West Virginia. That's five high major teams. They played Florida and Oregon State, I think, in the preseason in IT. They played Missouri and Clemson, I believe, at home. And then they went down to West Virginia in a rivalry game. Uh, in those games, Bub Carrington is averaging, I believe it's 12.2 points, shooting 34.9% from the field, 23% from three, 76% from the line, 6.2 assists, 2.4 turnovers. That's a 44.1 true shooting percentage in those five high major games. That's what he has to prove, especially for a guy that's going to have a hard time getting all the way to the rim right now. He has to prove that he can find a way to efficiently score in ACC play, especially once these ACC teams and especially once they start playing them a second time in the ACC play occasionally as well. Once they start to take away that right hand, which I think will happen, uh, can he consistently still get to it even if they try to take it away? And on top of it, uh, can he find a way to score consistently in those settings? That's kind of where I'm at on Bob Carrington. Um Tyler Smith, you know, from Freilichta. Uh, I love what I've seen from Tyler Smith so far. Uh, six foot 11, let's call him 225, you know, kind of a combo big right now for the G League Ignite. Lefty can really shoot the basketball, can really step uh, out and knock down shots from three. He is an active cutter. He is good finishing around the basket. I've been very, very, very impressed uh, with what I've seen from. Tyler Smith on offense needs to probably pass it a little bit better. I think, I think that he does miss some reads from time to time defensively. Uh, it, it look, I don't know what to do with him defensively because that whole ignite situation seems very difficult to judge right now. When I saw him, I did not think he was making rotations, uh, consistently, and I kind of wonder if he's maybe a little bit of a tweener uh, at the four and the five. Can he consistently like play center against the biggest, baddest dudes in the NBA? You know, Jokic, Embiid, Sabonis, Shengun, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I don't know that. So he might end up being more of a four, but does he have the ball handling ability to be able to do that given how uh, teams like to use those guys? Still, you know, six foot 11 can shoot real athlete those guys always end up uh, being rated highly. Uh, I got a few Filipowski questions. So Joe Sway Gonzalez, do you think Filipowski is a true center at the next level? That's a good one. And then I got a bunch of questions on flip on Twitter as well. So let's, let's finish maybe on flip. So uh, help me understand the love for Kyle Filipowski seems hard for me to, justify him being a top 20 pick unless he can become Lowry Markkinen offensively. Uh, and then there was another one here that was like the opposite, funny enough. Uh, maybe not. 
maybe not. Maybe we'll just put the other Hirsch. Mike Steinitz asked, uh, what do you like and dislike about Kyle Filipowski? Mike asked a bunch of questions. So maybe we'll leave his up. Uh, what do you dislike about, or what do you like and dislike about Kyle Filipowski? What do you see his outcome range as basically? Uh, yeah. So what I like about flip is that he's physical. Uh, he is willing to get in there and like battle and scratch and claw for every inch of the game. Uh, to me, it's not really Lowry. The comp is more like Kelly Olenek when I watch him, a guy that is comfortable playing with the ball away from the basket, but also can run post plays and can do some different things that way. Uh, I'm trying to pull up flips numbers as we talk here. So Kyle Filipowski, seven foot center at Duke. 240 pounds, let's call him, averaging 17 points, nine rebounds, 2.4 assists, shooting 50% from the field, 26% from three, 73% from the line. Those are the numbers, right? Like those last two, 25% from three right now. Last season, I think he was at like 27, 28% from three. Needs to be able to shoot it at the end of the day. If he can shoot it from distance at a high level, Kyle, Kyle Filipowski will be an awesome third big man in the vein of Kelly Olenek, same kind of player, right? But what has made Kelly Olenek such a valuable player in the NBA is the ability to space the floor, the ability to step out and knock down shots. You know, earlier in his career, like in Boston, like he was fine those first couple of years, but what transformed him into getting like a $50 million contract from Miami in 2017's numbers, not 2023's numbers is over the course of those last two years, he shot 38% from three uh, in Boston. I think that the hope for flip is to be something like Kelly Olenek. You watch Utah games. Kelly Olenek is still really good. Uh, Olenek, they use him like at the top of the key. They have him initiate a lot of offensive sets, like with his passing more than anything else this year. They really need somebody, you know, because of their guard situation off the bench. Now that Keontae George is starting, that can move the ball and that can, you know, foster any sort of real ball movement in any way, shape or form. Uh, he is, he's somebody that I really enjoy watching and that I think somebody should try and go get from Utah to kind of bring that full circle back to Filipowski. Filipowski is similar to what Linux was in that last year at Gonzaga physical post player gets to the line, you know, consistently battles rebounds on both ends of the court, you know, blocks shots. I think he's done a good job of blocking shots a lot more often uh, this season. You know, he's almost at two blocks per game. He needs to shoot it. That that's the bet on Filipowski. And honestly, like I'd probably be willing to make that bet in the first round personally. Uh, in fact, I certainly would. I have him ranked like right around 18, 20 right now, something like that. But that's, that's the swing skill is flip being a 35% three point shooter. If he's that he's definitely an NBA big. You Here's the other thing too. I, I have NBA trade deadline, big board, probably coming later this week, maybe early next week, something like that. The thing that every single team across the league right now needs is a backup big. Truly, like you look around the NBA right now at the level of, you know, backup centers. Watch Houston, for instance, like Jock Lawndale just got, you know, basically a one year, $8 million contract. I know it was 432, but those last three years are non-guaranteed and he's not playing super well right now. 
if you watch like Houston, like they need a backup big. Uh, I think Denver still needs somebody to be able to come in and be like a real legit backup big that could create, you know, value for real minutes. And the teams that have them, by the way, you look at like New York with the way that like somebody like Isaiah Hartenstein can come in and just be like an ass kicker on defense that can move the ball and that can like make shots. It is an enormous marginal advantage for them. And yeah, Gorilla Gorilla, uh, Gorilla Gorilla. Yeah. My brain, Jock Londale's out of the rotation. Yeah. It's a hundred percent right. Cause he wasn't playing well. Um, you look at the teams like the Knicks that have this great, you know, backup center. It's a huge advantage to have a good backup big uh, team that would be able to go out and get Kelly Olenek would get a huge, huge marginal advantage, in my opinion. Uh, no Tal asks, would you take Filipowski or Trevon Brazil first? I would take Flip first. I know that that's probably unpopular. Uh, I think that Kyle Filipowski is much better on defense than what he gets credit for. And I think that Trevon Brazil is much worse on defense than what he seems to get credit for from blocking shots. Uh, Trevon's ball screen defense, I think, has not been very good uh, and was really bad last year, I thought. Uh, Filipowski can like actually move and slide his feet and can stay in front of guys like at the college level, at least at a reasonable level. Uh, yeah, I would take Flip. I would. Uh, I know that that's, you know, that, that might get me canceled by draft Twitter. Uh, taking Kyle Filipowski over Trevon Brazil, but what can you do? Okay. That's where I'm going to call it. I've talked now for 90 straight minutes. My voice is starting to go folks. Uh, this will go up on the podcast feed. If you're a new listener, cause I think I brought some new people in. It seems like hit the like button, hit the subscribe button on the channel. We're going to do some of these throughout the course of the year. Bryce Simon will be back either tomorrow or the next day. Not sure yet when we're going to record. We're going to talk about basketball. I don't know what we'll talk about. Bryce probably wants to talk about the draft at some point. Maybe we'll save that for next week while I'm on vacation. Um, I will have at least one more, probably two more shows this week. And then next week, I will probably have two shows because again, I will be on the beach and I'm not really messing around uh, with all of this while I'm on vacation. I'm going to try and do this radical thing where I don't watch basketball for a little while uh, and we'll see whether or not it lasts. Thank you all for coming in. Thank you all for asking so many awesome questions. Hit the subscribe button, hit the like button, do what you can to support the channel, do what you can to support the show, hit the subscribe button on the podcast feed. This will be up uh, for Monday morning. Thank you all for listening until next time. We'll talk soon.